Uh, Colossians chapter number three is where I'm going to read from. If you want to be there, you can, but we're going to put these two verses on the screen. Where's what I, I want to launch from. And we're at the very end of this series. This is literally week 10 of our 10-week series. So uh, we've walked through 10 choices. These have all built one upon another. So if you just got here maybe the past couple weeks or this week, then it will. It, there's been a lot that is built up to this point, but I think that it's a freestanding truth that you'll be able to get. I will tell you this, no matter how long you've been in church, no, no matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not, probably each of you is gonna resist me somewhat today on this truth. And I get that and I'm okay with that, but if you'll hang with me a little bit, we'll get to some good ground that you'll be glad we got there. But from the get-go, it's going to challenge you a little bit, especially in our American culture. This is a tough truth to, to wrestle with, but it's in my top 10 list, okay? This is one of the top 10 choices that I would say you need to make that will help your life immensely if you can come to terms with this. And this really is, is a paradigm choice. This is a filter by which you see all of life. This is a filter by which you see your marriage, your parenting, your job, everything, your money, what your possessions. It allows you to see everything, and it doesn't particularly come uh, naturally. You, you have to work to cultivate this, and you, and you have to wrestle with some tough truths, some simple truths, but some tough ones to really come to terms with this. So I'm going to launch from Colossians 3, where we're encouraged to do what I'm going to encourage you to do today, and I'm going to try to help you get there. So here's Colossians 3, where we want to be. But in truth, most of us, even myself, struggle to be here sometimes, so I'll try to help us get there today. Here's Colossians 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, meaning you know Jesus as your Savior, you're a follower of Christ, would be a simpler way to put that. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So seek what is in the heavenlies, seek what is eternal, seek, uh, seek what will last permanently, verse number 2. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, that's a very simple phrase, but a tough one to live out on a day-to-day -day basis. There, there are two verbs here. There's seek and set. And th this is saying you want Jesus, you want eternity to captivate your ambitions, what you're seeking, what you're pursuing, what you're going after. We have a hard time shoving our hearts up into the heavenlies because we get preoccupied with with the job, with the car, with the money, with the house, with whatever it may be, and it, and it tends to, to rob us of putting our ambitions where they need to be. But then it says, uh, set your affection. So, so allow eternity to captivate your ambitions. Allow eternity to captivate your affections. Allow it to grab your attention and put it there. And you could really sum up these two verses in this way. What Paul is saying is live in light of eternity. That's really what he's saying. Allow what you do, allow what you feel, allow what you're pursuing, allow what you crave, allow that to be filtered through eternity. Allow it to be what, what really is going to matter one day. And this is, this is the choice that I want you to try to make and where we want to end up at the end of today is choosing, you know what, I'm going to do my best to live in light of eternity. I'm going to do my best to do what Paul is telling me to do here. And I am, I'm, I'm going to wrestle with this. And I'm going to try to make this choice. Uh, this is what the French novelist of the early 1900s, Marcel Proust, said. He said, the real act of discovery consists not in finding new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. And I would agree with that. And this morning, I'm going to try to help you see with new eyes before I encourage you to do something with your new vision. And really, this morning, the decision begins with allowing a perspective to, to sink in. It, uh, it starts with allowing a paradigm to shift and then living out of that. And many, 
many that are followers of Christ don't even really come to terms with this and, and live out of this. And I, I hope that you'll see this morning, this is deeply biblical and deeply needed for your walk with the Lord. And to get you to really come to terms with living in light of eternity, I need you to get two truths. They're very simple, but they're, they're tough to come to terms with sometimes. So here are the two truths. Life is short and eternity is long, like real long, okay? Those, those are the two truths. I'll call them brevity and eternality. Life is short and eternity is long. Now that's, that's simple, that's really bottom shelf, but it's something that we don't wrestle with a lot. And if we can get these two, I think that we'll really understand what we need to do. So I'm gonna start with this. Brevity <clears throat> plus eternality just equals reality. All right, let me, let me first address brevity. Now if you're sitting here thinking, Life is short, pastor, that's morbid. I did not need to come to church today for someone to tell me that I'm going to die soon. I could have stayed home and been discouraged. I don't really need that. Well, if you think it's morbid, hold on. We'll get to it being life-giving in a little bit. You're gonna have to hang with me, but we'll get to it being a life-giving truth in, in just a moment. And we want to, honestly, we wanna stare this uncomfortable truth in the face just for a little bit. Billy Graham once noted that this biggest surprise in all of life to him was the brevity of life. He said, what really surprised me about my life was just how quick it went. And that, that's the truth. Life is short. It's, it's a, it sounds blunt, but the bottom line is you and I are going to die. You're coming to my funeral, or I'm coming to yours, one or the other. The mortality rate has held very steady at 100% for some time now, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Now, you, you can do all you can to, to add a few years to your life. You know, you can, uh, you can try to flood your body with antioxidants. You can go sit in an infrared room and detoxify. You can get your lift on. You can eat vegan. You can eat vegetarian. You can eat keto diet. You can eat however you want. I don't care. But the, the basic truth is it's an inescapable reality that death will come to all of us sooner rather than later, and it will, it will quickly approach. Tozer put it this way. He said that life is like a feverish music rehearsal where we try to learn our instruments as best we can. And just about the time we get proficient, we have to put our instruments down and we can't play anymore. That, that sounds depressing. I know it does, but there's some accuracy there. That it feels like just about the time I figure out what life is about, I get some wisdom, I'm able to help some people, that it seems like life is approaching its end. And this is a truth, honestly, that's echoed through the pages of Scripture over and over and over again. You would have things like James 4, where this is super blunt, but James writes and says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. That's pretty blunt. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. You, you don't know what is happening. You don't know how your life will change. Some of you this year, your, your life was altered drastically by this simple truth that life is short. And, and truthfully, you have to understand that I, if I'm going to live in light of eternity, I got to get this. I got to get that life does come and go very quickly. And it's semi-uncomfortable. I know that it's semi-uncomfortable, but living in some sort of alternate reality where we build a fiction that we'll have oodles and oodles and oodles of time to be able to spend in this life is not helpful. It's not true. It's not real. The reality is that life is short. But there is a flip side to that coin, which is eternality. And by eternality, I mean God is eternal, 
Eternity is real, and we in Jesus are offered eternal life. Now, those are three big concepts that I'm assuming you, you believe the Bible and you understand what the Bible says. If you, don't, if, if you struggle to wrestle with those, we need to back it up to just the reliability of Scripture, which is not the point of today. But assuming that you believe Scripture is reliable, it teaches very plainly those truths over and over again, that God is eternal, that eternity is real, and that in Jesus Christ, his followers are offered eternal life and can live with him if forever one day, and that's, that's the truth for a Christian, that we may fear our last day, but our last day is actually the birthday of eternity. That that really just starts eternity for us, and it's not really our last day. I want you to look at Psalm 90, where I had you turn earlier in the service, and I want to read a few verses with you. And, and here at the end of the sermon, we'll circle back around to these, but this, this is Moses at the very end of his journey, writing to us to try to give us some wisdom. And he says, here's what I've learned, and he's going to tell us Basically, God is eternal, and we are definitely not. This is what he's going to say. Look at verse number one. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. He says, God, generation after generation after generation after generation, you are there. We are coming and going, but you are there. You're constant. We have the silent generation that turns into the baby boomers, it turns into Gen X, it turns into the millennials, it turns into now iGen, and we can come up with whatever clever names we want to, to name the next 25 years or the next generation coming, coming onto the scene, but the bottom line is one generation is fading off the scene, another generation is coming on the scene, and that's been happening over and over and over and over again, and meanwhile, God is still there being God. Like undiminished, not sick, not weak, not faint, not fading. He's still God there, everlasting. This is what he says in verse number two. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That money is temporary, our house is temporary, our car is temporary, our career is even temporary, but God is eternal. He says, look as far back as you want and look as far into the future as you want and you'll find God in both of those places still there being God. Verse number three, he says, thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return ye children of men. What he's saying is you see the patterns of human behavior unfold. You see, you see men fall into sin and self-implode. You see men come back to their senses. The cycle continues over and over and over for a millennia and you're still there. You're still there watching all this, being God. Verse 4, for as a thousand years in thy sight are as but yesterday when it's past, and as a watch in the night. He says, God, you're, you're so everlasting that a thousand years, a millennia, is like a day to you. It's like yesterday. We get this to some degree, don't we? The older we get, the more time speeds up. And a week feels like a day, and a month feels like a week, and then a year feels like a month, and we get how this, this feels differently. He said, just think, think about God for a moment. God, get a millennia. You ain't there yet. Get a millennia. That feels like a day to him. He said, no, no, let me think about it. It feels like a watch in a night. It feels like a shift at work. A millennia to God. He's, so, he's everlasting, everlasting. What is that to him? It's, it's just clocking in and clocking out for eight hours. It's no big deal. He, he is everlasting. Understand who God is. But then he says, now let's look at who we are compared to God. Verse five. Thou carriest them or us away as with a flood. I love this phrase. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourishes and then groweth up and then in the evening it's cut down and it withereth. He says, we, as opposed to God, we are a finite moment in history. 
The Bible describes our life as flourishing in the a.m. and withering in the p.m. There's the old adage, here today, gone tomorrow. Biblically, no, here today, gone today. That's how, that's how he describes it. He says, we're like a flood that, that carries us away. It's just the raging waters, just, whoop, there we go. He said, we're like a sleep. We get that, don't we? You go to sleep and then you wake up, whatever it is, six, seven, eight hours later, and you feel like, that was so fast. That, I wish that could have lasted longer. Did, did I really sleep that long? Does the clock really say that, right? He said, that's our life. It's like a sleep. It goes so fast that we get to the end and say, is this, is this, really, is this really nearing the end? Is this really all, all that there was as far as time? I thought I had more. He says, that, that's how we feel. You see what Moses is doing here? He's emphasizing both. He's saying the eternality of God and the brevity of life, get those. Now, that, that's a simple step in the process to come to terms with both of these truths. But these, these are simple truths that you have to come to terms with, that life is short and eternity is long in order to have reality because that is real. That's real. That, that will give you a, a, a firm grip on what is real. You can bank on that, that brevity and eternality are true. But brevity and eternality also equal what I would say is positivity. It equals something good. It gives you something substantial for your life. Some would say, no, this is discouraging. This is depressing. This, this is not what, what I want it to be. But if you really wrestle with this for just a few more moments, you'll start to understand that this actually is life-giving. Now, brevity by itself is discouraging. That's what humanism will offer. That's what, that's what atheism will offer. That's what naturalism will offer. That everything in the universe is the impersonal product of time and chance. That it just so happened this way. The ultimate reality is what we can empirically test. And, and all, we, all we get is what's, what's around us. There's nothing more than this. And so when we die, we die. Dust to dust. Peace out, Girl Scout. It's over. The end. Brevity. Life is short. That, that's, that's what atheism or humanism would, would peddle. And that is discouraging. To think that life is short. The end. That, that's a discouraging truth. Even brevity coupled with eternality but misunderstood is discouraging. Many of the Eastern religions will do this. That they'll tell you that life is short, but they'll tell you that life will go on and that you will be reincarnated and you will, you will come back again. Transcendentalism, the New Age movement, pantheism, these sorts of things. We, we have our own Western kind of pop version of reincarnation where I die and then I come back as a butterfly and I float around and life is good and happy and, and, and we love everything, which is not at all what Eastern religions teach. They teach that you will come back, but you will come back on the painful wheel of life over and over and over again. And true salvation is not in reincarnation, but true salvation is ultimately found in being absorbed into the ocean of being, which is, which is just a spiritual version of being annihilated. That, that's their teaching, which that's discouraging too. That either this lasts for a long time and, it, and it's really painful or I'm annihilated. That doesn't help me at all. That doesn't give me any hope. But when you understand biblically that you have the brevity of life that is short and you have eternality in God that is real and you understand what the Bible says about that, then you can find hope. Now, if what the Bible says is untrue and if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then all of our hope isn't worth half a hallelujah. But if it's true and it is true and Jesus did raise from the dead as validation of what he taught was, was accurate and we can trust in it, then we can know that there's something there for us. 
Because the scriptures teach that if you're a follower of Jesus, that one day a bodily resurrection awaits you as well, and there you will enjoy eternal new existence of life and light and love as it's meant to be for forever, and that followers of Christ get that, and that, that, that eternity is characterized by actual relationship with God. That is substantive. That is hopeful. That is beautiful. That will actually give you buoyancy to your soul if, if you can understand what the Bible teaches. This is why you would have uh, Psalm 39. So if you would just go back a few pages in Psalms and you'll see chapter 39 and you see this truth coming forth, that a proper understanding of this leads us to life and leads us to, to, to a way of thinking that actually is life-giving. I told you you would resist me a little bit today. You didn't believe me, but now you do. Psalm 39, here we go, verse four. It's gonna feel discouraging, but wait for it. Lord, here's the prayer of the psalmist. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days. It says, Lord, help me to know the measure of my life. Now, we'll see in just a moment. This is not a prayer of, Lord, help me to understand how fully great I am. Lord, help me to get in my humanity, just how awesome and austere I really am. That's not what he's saying. Lord, help me to know the measure of my life that I may know how frail I am. Help me to understand the measure of life so that I can see how puny and insubstantial I really am. That's, that's the prayer. You say, that, God, that feels discouraging. Well, keep reading, verse five. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age as, as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah, which means, let me just stop and think about this for a second. He says, the measure of my days, yeah, that amounts to nothing compared to God. That's, what is that? I, I can't even measure. It's so, it's so minuscule. It's so, it's so small. He says, at my very best, I'm altogether vanity. He said, let me, let me pick the best that I have to offer. Let me just go through the inventory of my life and get my best year there and let me find the year that I was, I was killing it. I was in the prime of life. I was accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. Things were going great. It was my best year ever. That really won't make a dent in eternity. What is that? What does that amount to? You say, I thought this wasn't going to be discouraging. Hang tight. Verse 6. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. He said, we're walking around trying to make our little fortunes, trying to stuff our little coffers, trying to build our little war chests. We don't even know where that stuff's going. Life is going to be short and it's going to be over. And who knows who's going to consume that? Who knows who that's going to be passed down to? I mean, Uncle Sam's going to get his and I'll, and I'll make a will, but give it a few years. And who knows where all that money is getting dispersed to? Who knows what's going to happen to that? Why, why am I doing this? Then he says, verse number seven. If you think it's discouraging, wait for verse seven. You'll find out that it's not. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. You see what's happening there? The truth of the brevity of his life and and how how small he really is in, in the grand scope of things, that truth is weighing down on him and it's ripping his hands off the cares of the world. It it is plying his fingers away from chasing money, away from chasing the career, away from from chasing the prestige or or some other guy who's minuscule and and just uh, but a vapor as well, thinking highly of me. It it is ripping him away from that and it is migrating his hope away from the things of the world over to God. 
And it's helping him to get to my hope is going to be in God because God is forever and he is everlasting. He is substantial. If there's something to hang on to, if there's something to trust in, if there's something to hope in, then that's, that's got to be God, not this life and what this life has to offer me. So I'm going to push that over there. This is not leading him to despair, discouragement, or depression. This is leading the psalmist to true hope and to real life. This, this is helping cultivate something inside of the psalmist, and it, and it will in you. And, and the irony of this paradigm shift is that you feel, like you're, you feel like you're losing something if you'll begin to shift to, I'll live in light of eternity, and the things of this world really won't have as much of a luster as they used to have. If you begin to shift that, you'll feel like you're losing something, but you're not. You're gaining everything. You'll feel like what I've cared for, what I, was, what I was taught to pursue, that I should just get a good education, I should make a good, a good amount of money, and I should have a good retirement, that the American dream, that, that, I'm, that I'm taught to just do that. Now I feel like that's being ripped away from me, and that's changing, and that's affecting my priorities and my time. And you'll feel, that'll feel a bit painful, but if you'll embrace it and you'll, and you'll go with it, it will actually lead you to something that is substantive. It'll lead you to something that doesn't pass away, that you can't lose when the stock market goes upside down, when the housing market crashes, when you get a bad note from your doctor, you can't lose it if, you, if your hope is in God. You'll find something that is real. You'll find something that is substantial. This helps you see that if life is short, then I should live in the present and I, sh I, should, I should do my best to soak this in while I can. Go to a funeral. What happens? If you, don't, if you don't leave a funeral and, and hug your wife and your children a little bit tighter and enjoy them a little bit more that day, I, something's wrong. But it will, that will happen. Why? Because you understand, oh, man, I am reminded that life is short, so now I'm going to cherish what I do have for this, for this vapor, for this little bit of time. I'm going to cherish it all the more. If you understand this and you get what Paul said in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this world and the pain of life are short-lived and eternity is long. That's what he said in Romans 8. He says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He says, yeah, I have pain, I have suffering, I'm in prison, people are beating me, I'm going through a, a whole lot of stuff that I wouldn't have wished upon myself, but I'm going through it, but I understand that life is short, and that'll be over pretty fast, but there's a glory which shall be revealed, and I understand that I'm playing the long game here, and I, I'm moving towards eternity, and really this, this isn't that big of a deal now because I get how big eternity is and I get how short life is. That this will help you cope with pain. This will help you get through those tough times. This will help you to see that you can process all the pain of this life through the beauty of the next. This will help you. I, I could apply this a million ways, but this will help you with your midlife crisis. When you go through your midlife crisis, and I will eventually one day, I'll get there, I'm sure. When that happens, that crisis won't be that big of a crisis after all. What happens when we reach our 40s or 50s or somewhere in, the, in that time frame? We start to come to terms with our declining capacities and our increasing responsibilities. And many times it sends us into a tailspin. We start to realize that the dreams that we had in our teen years, in our 20s, in our 30s, all of a sudden we realize time is escaping me quicker than I thought it would. And I'm not going to be able to realize some of the dreams that I thought I was going to be able to. And if your hope is tied strictly to this planet, that's traumatizing. That's, that's kind of worth despairing over, actually. 
But if you get a biblical perspective and you get brevity and you get eternality and you get that God told you from the get-go that this life was gonna go fast and you weren't that awesome in the first place, so to put your trust and your hope in him and, and, to, and to love him and to treasure that and to invest in that, if you got that, then that midlife crisis is gonna be very minimized. This actually helps. This, this produces something positive. This produces something substantial. This is good medicine. This is something the Bible tries to remind us of frequently because if we can t- come to terms with this, you don't shrivel up and die on the vine. You will actually find optimism and hope and buoyancy for your soul. Lastly, I would say this. Brevity plus eternality equals strategy. Does, does it just give you a, a realism to your life? Sure. Does it actually give you some optimism and something to hold on to and to know that this can help me in so many different situations? Yes, absolutely. But does this give you something to take away and something to to put into practice tangibly, pragmatically? Absolutely, yes, it does. Back to Psalm 90 where we read earlier where Moses said at the end of his days, God is eternal and he's big and I'm real small and my life is short. He continues in that passage and he says in verse number 10 of Psalm 90, the days of our years, they're three score years and ten. And if by reason of strength, they'd be four score years. He says, really, we're going to live to be eh, 70-ish. Maybe, maybe we're stronger and we live to be 80-ish. But that's, that's about what it will be. Yet, is there, is there strength, labor, and sorrow? He says, actually, if, if you're strong enough and you start to live longer, that could eventually turn into some labor and some sorrow and could make things tougher. But it's soon cut off, and we fly away. What's he saying? The brevity of life. 70, 80, it may may seem like a long time, but it's not a long time. We soon fly away. Then he says, who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. That's a subplot through this entire chapter that I don't have time to develop this morning, but it's, it's there, so I'm reading it. You can study it on your own. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. You know what he's saying? If I get this and I'm able to number my days, I'm able to think about the brevity of life, I'm able to come to terms with this, this will help me apply my heart to wisdom. This will help me live wisely. This will help me make a million choices. This is one choice that will, that will in turn domino and make a million choices for me. This will allow me to have the courage and the wisdom to shift my paradigm from just this earth and what is temporal to what is eternal. This will help me to live in light of eternity. It will help me to understand that this is a wise choice. Me me wrestling with this is actually going to give me a strategy for a way to live. And if you get this, then you get exactly why Paul told the Colossian church, what we read in the beginning, that we should set our affection on things above, that we should seek the things that are above, that we should take our ambitions, that we should take our attention, that we should take our desires, and we should move those away from the temporal and into the eternal, and that we should try to pursue that. You get why Paul would say that, because that actually is a wise choice to seek those things. I recently, most all of you would know, not all of you, but many of you would know, just a few weeks ago, uh, a small team of us traveled to Vanuatu to check out a missions trip that we're taking a group of 25 or so uh, here this summer from our church. And many of you were in the interest meeting for that last week about traveling this summer to Vanuatu and, and pursuing that and taking a missions trip there. But we just went there just a few weeks ago. 
And in prepping for going to Vanuatu, we wanted to know when we get there, how will we be able to buy food? How will we be able to get around? What do we need to do to prepare ourselves to, to be able to live in that country for a small period of time? And what we found out is that it's very different than America. That their, their currency and what they required for us to get around was different than what I would maybe typically use here. So you know what I didn't do? I didn't go to Chuck E. Cheese and get a bag of Chuck E. Cheese tokens and take it to Vanuatu and expect them to accept that and me to be able to live off of that. They, they, they don't take Chuck E. Cheese's currency over there. I couldn't even take them my Home Depot gift cards or my Olive Garden gift cards. They won't care. Their Home Depot gift cards mean nothing to them. I could not even write them a check that's attached to my bank account. They, they, it doesn't matter. I could write them a check for a million dollars for a dollar Coke. And, and that's no good to them. That's not what they accept. Even my American Express, they would not accept. They some Visa, a little bit of MasterCard, but American Express, apparently in Vanuatu, I don't know why it is. Maybe the rate is higher or something, but they don't want my Amex. You know what they wanted? The only currency that would, that would transfer, that would somehow help, is if we took some dollars. Now, I guess I could have got some money from a different country and they would have exchanged that, but I needed to take 20s and 50s and bring them some cash. And then that would actually transfer over to the Vatu, and I would have something that would allow me to live in that country after my trip. The unique thing about the Bible is that it tells us exactly how we can invest in eternity and what currency will transfer and what currency will not transfer. The Bible is very plain. If you want a strategy to invest in eternity and to prepare not just for this life but for the next, it will tell you what to do. And it will tell you there are some things that we value here that will not matter. And there are some things that maybe we undervalue here that will matter deeply that we need to invest in. Now, I could give you probably a, a hundred of these, but I'm only going to give you three because that's all the time I have this morning and you'll understand a bit of what I'm, what I'm talking about. But if you want a strategy to try to invest in eternity, to try to, to move your heart there, to try to actually live this out in a pragmatic way, here's what the scriptures say. If you want to invest in eternity, invest through generosity. Over and over again, you will find this teaching that what you give with the right motives, if you give it out of a wrong motive, then you, you get your reward and people see you at the end. But if you give it out of the right motive, then you, will, then you will actually find that that pays dividends for much longer than this life. For example, Philippians 4 tells us, we studied this just a, a few months ago. Paul says to the church that sent him a care package and sent him money and sent him things. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent once again into my necessity. When I was there, you sent to me over and over again. Verse 17, it's not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Now, that's not a trite saying. What Paul is saying there is, th this isn't about me. I'm not trying to get more. This is not a passive aggressive attempt to get more money. This is not a weak fundraising ploy. This is me sincerely telling you that your generosity is not unnoticed by me, nor will your generosity be unnoticed by God. Paul is telling them that this is fruit that will abound to your account, that God is going to mark down in the heavenly ledger some sort of credit to your account, that he's, you're going to have a deposit in heaven that pays rich dividends, that what you're giving to me is far beyond me. This really isn't about me. This is about something else. You're investing in eternity by what you give. You want to invest in eternity? Here's the way to do it. Do it through service. Invest in eternity through service. This is what 1 Timothy 6 says. We studied this about a year, year and a half ago. These, these three verses, which are beautiful and awesome. Paul tells Timothy, charge those or challenge those that are rich in this world. 
And we spent a whole sermon talking about that's you and that's me. I know you don't feel rich. You feel like rich is the other guy. I know that. But go to Vanuatu this summer and you'll find out you're rich. It's just the bottom line, okay? We, my favorite way to put it is if you have a pet that you take care of with no intention of eating, you're rich, okay? That's, that's just, that's us. We're first world Americans. We're rich. Our phones don't break. We just get a new one because there's a newer one. It works fine. We upgrade it. But we're rich. Charge those people that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. Tell those people not to put their hope in their riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Take your hope and migrate it from what you have in your stuff and shove it on over to Jesus and make sure that your hope is in God because he's the one that gave it to you in the first place. Verse 18, and here's what you should do. If you have money, which is all of us, I know some of us have more money than others, but we all, we all, this is us, that they do good, that they be rich. Oh, I like to be rich, that they be rich in good works. Do good, be rich in good works, ready to distribute. That means I'm, I'm ready to, to give away. I'm ready to be generous, willing to communicate. Or you could say willing to share. He says, do more and give more, serve more and give more. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your money. That's if you have money. That's why you should do this. And here's why. Verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. He says, when you're doing this, you're being obedient, sure. But what you're doing actually is you're building a foundation against the time to come, against eternity. You're investing in your future. You are moving this to where it will actually last beyond your life. You're, when you serve other people, when you give to other people, when you help other people, that is an opportunity to invest in eternity and to live in light of that. This, if, you, if you get this, this will change so much of how you think and so much of what you do. You'll begin to understand that, okay, I'm, I'm a modern American. I have, I have a family of five. I'm, I'm, the only, I'm the only one that works in my home. This is my home. Five of us. I'm the only one that works, and I get a day off, so I only have to work five, six days a week. And during those days, I only work maybe eight or so hours a day. So I can do that for me and supply enough money for five people, and I actually get a couple days off in the process. That's unique. We feel like it's our rite of passage as Americans, but historically speaking, that's unique. What that means is that I and my family have more time to give. I and my family are blessed financially enough to do that, so now I have an opportunity to either A, load my schedule and load what I do and load what I spend my money on and things that are just temporal and just of this world and pursue that, or I have an opportunity to invest in a greater capacity in eternity. That's what Paul's after. He said, tell those people that have the opportunity to do more and to give more and to go that route because that will last. And if you do this, the people around you, even Christian people around you, they'll scratch their head at you. You, cho you choose to give up the promotion in order to have more time to serve at church or to serve in the kingdom, people won't get that stuff. They may admire it a little bit, but they really, they won't understand. You choose to take your vacation time and go on a mission trip instead of going to Disney World, and I'm not against Disney World, but you choose to do that instead of Disney World, people are gonna scratch their head. They may feel that you're somewhat philanthropic, they may tip your hat to you, but they, they're probably not gonna mimic you because they won't get it, because they're, they're not living with the, with the, in light of eternity. But when you start to live in light of eternity, all of a sudden, things start to shape up differently. 
And understand by what you give, you invest there. By what you serve and, and how, you, how you help other people, you invest there. I'll give you one more. You invest through sharing the gospel. You sharing the good news of Jesus with other people is investing in eternity. This is exactly what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's as though God did beseech you by us. It's as though God is talking to people through us when we, when we shared the message of Jesus. It's like God's talking to them, but he's, he, he is, but he isn't really. It's us that's talking to them. We're, we're his ambassador. We're his representative. We pray you in Christ that be you reconciled to God. Because here's what he did with Jesus. We sang about that in the ensemble did a moment ago. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What this is saying is that you get the opportunity to share the message of Jesus. And in so doing, you get to affect people's eternity. That they're either reconciled to God or not. They're made the righteousness of Christ or not. They become followers of Jesus or not. That when we share the message, we are impacting what is happening far beyond this life, but in eternity, not just for ourselves, but for other people, that we get to invest in that. We get to impact that. And the bottom line is this. Life is short, so understand that it's only for this brief window of time that you have an opportunity to give to the poor. It's only for this brief window of time that you have an opportunity to serve through your church. It's only through this brief window of time that you have an opportunity to, to share the message of Jesus with other people. Because once you, for lack of a better term, check out, then there's no more. You're not given to the poor any longer. You're, you're not serving Jesus through the church any longer. You are not sharing the message of Jesus and the good news and seeing people come to him any longer. It's done, it's over, it's short. You have a small, small window of time to do that and what the scriptures try to get us to do. And I know this is big boy Christianity. I know this, I know this is grown up. I know that this is the last choice in our 10 choices. So a lot leads you to this. I get that. And some of you may not be at this choice yet, and I hope that you'll get there. But this, this is what the scriptures try to push us to over and over and over again to understand that that, that investment lasts far longer than what you're going to invest in through your 401k here. It's far more stable. What do we want? I'll end with this. I'm done. What do we want for our investments here with our finances on earth? Go through your, what, through your raw, through your, through your 401k, whatever you're investing in. What? What do you want? You want, you want a, a high yield and you want security. And normally those are to the exclusion of the other, right? Find something a bit more stable, invest in a, in a CD or in, in a bond or something that the government offers and you'll have a smaller yield. Find something that can potentially offer you a bigger yield and, and it's a little bit more volatile. And there's a potential that you know, the company may go belly up. That, that's here, earthly, temporally. But in eternity, you can invest through Jesus in something that is far more stable and far higher a yield than anything you can find earthly. It is, your investment is not being backed by the federal government of the United States of America. It's being backed by God himself. Right? I didn't say it. He did. It's being backed by God, and it yields dividends for eternity. Like, it's tough for me to comprehend that, but that's crazy. So why not live in light of that? Why not live in light of that? Why not take our affection and our hearts and our time and our desire and say, I'm going to live in light of eternity?